You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Here's Nate. Well, in Exodus chapter 30, Moses is still up on the mountain with God, receiving really the ceremonial religious worship side of the law. The Ten Commandments have been given the laws concerning their civil responsibilities towards one another and laws for the judges to use to judge the nation had already been given. But Moses is now up on top of the mountain seeking the Lord, hearing from the Lord concerning the tabernacle, the priestly system, and their form of worship and how they would be a sacrificing people constantly reminded of their deep need for blood to cover their sin in order to establish and have access to a relationship with God. And in chapter 28 and 29 of Exodus, we've seen the garments and then the consecration of the high priest who was Aaron initially and his sons. And now we move in Exodus chapter 30 to some of the instruments that they would use in their ministry, starting in verse 1 with the altar of incense. And as we look at each one of these elements, we get a good picture from God on what he is looking for when it comes to our ministry unto him. We've been saying that, that we are a kingdom of priests, according to the New Testament. Peter writes of this, John records this in Revelation chapter 1. We're a kingdom of priests, but we know now some hints towards what our ministry unto the Lord will look like. But looking at these specific instruments, the altar of incense, the tax that was given, the bronze basin, the anointing oil. As we look at each one of these things, we can see the ways in which the Lord desires for us to minister to him. And one of the first things here that we see is this altar. It says in verse 1, You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be a square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. So you have this again, the acacia wood comes back. We have already seen it previously. The acacia wood was used for the table of showbread, was used for the Ark of the Covenant, was used even with the altar outside of the tabernacle. Here the acacia wood once again appears, and this smaller altar is now outlined by the Lord. A very short altar, three feet high, a square at the top of it, about a foot and a half wide. And so a small altar made of acacia wood. And it has horns, just like the altar outside. He says, verse 3, you shall overlay it with pure gold, its top around and its sides and its horns, you shall make a molding of gold around it. So again, the gold comes back into play, which reminds us of all the other instruments that were inside of the tabernacle. They were, even if constructed with acacia wood, covered with gold. The things that were outside of the tabernacle were bronze. The things inside the tabernacle were gold. And so it gives us a hint as to where this altar is actually going to go. You shall, verse 4, 
Make two golden rings for it under its molding. On two opposite sides of it you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. So interesting because, again, many similarities with some of the instruments that have already been described. The ark, table of showbread, the altar made of acacia wood, then covered with a metal, gold if it was to be placed inside the tabernacle, bronze if outside the tabernacle. They all had these poles that were made of acacia wood and covered with their respective metals for carrying. And again, this altar as well has that same thing, these poles with which to carry this altar. But the interesting thing here is that this altar was then to be placed inside the tabernacle in front of the veil that led to the Holy of Holies. So it didn't actually sit in the room with the Ark of the Covenant. It sat in the room with the table of showbread and the golden lampstands. But this altar is now mentioned to us. And of course, the one question here is, why wasn't this altar mentioned previously? You know, the Ark was the first thing mentioned and everything seems to have centered around it. But this altar of incense, this small little altar, is nearly the final thing that God mentions. I'm not exactly sure as to why this is mentioned almost at the very end of this entire record. Perhaps it has to do with the picture of what this altar was actually being used for in the tabernacle. It was being used to burn incense. And he says in verse 7, Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning when he dresses the lamps of the lampstand, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement for its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Now, it's clear throughout Scripture that incense is a beautiful picture, a perfect illustration of what prayer is all about. Psalm 141, verse 2, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Luke chapter 1, verse 10, the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Two times a day, the priest would burn this incense when he trimmed the wicks of the candles. And so they were there praying at the hour of incense. But mostly in Revelation chapter 5, when John receives his vision of the heavenly throne room of God, each was holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. These 24 elders that John sees. But he says of these golden bowls full of incense, he says, which are the prayers of the saints. So prayers are collected there in heaven and pictured as golden bowls full of incense. And what a perfect picture. They would burn this incense. It would, of course, the aroma of the incense would fill the entire room. There'd be an atmosphere that had been changed as a result 
of that incense burning. And that incense as well would go from one physical location into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. And even though the people weren't constantly going into the Holy of Holies, even though it was a rare moment to go there, the incense would go there. Every time that it would burn, it would travel into and before the presence of God. And so I think in one sense, what we can see here is that when it comes to ministering to the Lord, God is looking for a praying people. He loves prayer. And perhaps this has something to do with it being mentioned at the very end. It's something that is supposed to permeate everything that we do. The lampstand, the showbread, the ark, the altar, all of it should be have an overall atmosphere of prayer about it. God is looking for that in our ministry. It is shameful to me that we would conduct ministry in a prayerless kind of sense. I think all of us want to see an increase in our own lives of prayer. But God is looking for a praying people. Notice how the prayer was to be before the Lord. However, before we move on to the next element here in this chapter, the priest would morning and twilight regularly offer this incense before the Lord. Our prayer is to be a regular thing. It's a great thing to begin your day in prayer, to end your evening in prayer, and to all throughout the day, of course, pray without ceasing, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.17, before the Lord. Notice as well, though, about this incense that they weren't to offer unauthorized incense. God is the one who defined what the incense would be made of. He defined the ingredients and the recipe for making this incense. Unauthorized, verse 9, incense was rejected. You shall not offer unauthorized incense upon it. Strange incense was not to be used. Strange fire, Leviticus 10, verse 1, was not to be used with God's altar. I think this is an important point. Their prayer or their incense was to be incense that was according to God's will. Our prayer should be prayer that is according to God's will. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, Jesus said to his father in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. There should be this willingness to submit ourselves to God's plan, God's direction, it's not a wrestling with God as much as it's a wrestling in prayer. I find that in my prayer life, so much of what I'm doing is not trying to get God to submit to me, but that through prayer, I eventually come to the place where my prayer is reflective of what God wants to do, submitting myself to him and to his plans. And, you know, of course, this was not a place where atonement was made just that it was enjoyed. They weren't saving themselves through prayer. They had been covered by the blood previously, but prayer was to be according to and is to be according to God's word. But notice as well, before we move away from this altar in our text today, that they would take blood and put it on the horns of this altar. So it wasn't a place of sacrifice, but the atoning blood on the Day of Atonement was placed upon this altar. So always important to remember as we pray that prayer is made possible by the blood, not by works. And this is important to remember when you come before the Lord in prayer 
to remember that it's not upon the basis of your behavior the previous day or the previous month that you have a standing before God. It's because of the blood that you are able to stand there in the presence of God and to offer your incense of prayer before the Lord. Now, moving past the altar of incense, in verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, a half shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward, this seems to be adulthood in Israel, shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives." And so God speaks of this census and a census tax that then was so regular that it developed into the temple tax. So later in the book of Numbers, there would be two significant censuses recorded for the nation of Israel. And each time they had a census like this, everybody had to pay this particular tax, which helped fund the ministry on an ongoing kind of basis. They'd already donated to the tabernacle, developed that and everything. But but here this was now a people that when they gathered together, they were to, with thanksgiving, give a ransom for his life, he says in verse 12, with this temple shekel. Now, of course, the big question here is, what does he mean when he says, that he must give a ransom for his life, that there be no plague among them when you number them. And people will offer different reasons for this type of plague. Of course, in First Chronicles chapter 21, we actually see this play out in the life of David when he took an unlawful census, did not receive the redemption money, and God began to strike the nation of Israel, and of course that's in one sense how David even acquired the threshing floor of Arana, which would become the place that the temple mount would eventually be constructed and the temple would be built. But so God did, in one sense, at one point, bring this plague amongst the people. Some would say that the reason that God is describing it this way is because a census or counting signifies ownership. And so without this offering being given, you're not declaring that the ownership of these people is God himself. And if you're claiming that you own these people, if you're the leader or you're the king, and you're not seeing yourself as just an under-shepherd of the Lord, then God will strike the people. No, that offering would indicate, I belong to God. I am owned by the Lord. And so they would give these silver half shekels unto the Lord during any time that a census was taken. And as I said, later on in the temple tax, and this was a true flat tax, the rich verse 15 and the poor in verse 15, all paid the same amount. Very unlike our New Testament version of giving 
which is proportional to our income and situation. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. This was an everyone across the board pays the same, which speaks a little bit more concerning the across-the-board salvation that we receive from Jesus Christ. We all have so much to be thankful for. So God is looking for a thankful people. Now, verse 17, he describes this bronze basin. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet, when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. And so, additionally now, we have this basin of bronze that God would put outside of the tabernacle in between the altar and the tent uh, where Aaron and his sons would wash themselves regularly to actually conduct ministry. Again, they would, on that day of atonement and that day that they were consecrated, they would receive that overall cleansing and washing. But here in this moment, just for that daily ministry, they would be washed before the Lord, wash their hands and their feet indicating that God wants a clean people involved in serving him. It is possible, of course, even when you are serving the Lord, to become defiled and to give yourselves to things that you should not give yourself to. And so here is an opportunity for cleansing. Of course, in the New Testament era, we are washed by the water of the word. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 26. The Lord speaks to us and encourages us and we are washed through his word. Continue to turn to his word that he might cleanse you for the ministry that he has for you. As Jesus told Peter and the rest of his disciples in John chapter 13, you are all already clean, uh, but not all of you. I must wash your feet. We walk through this dirty world let the water of the word of Christ wash you and cleanse you. Now, in verse 22, we see the anointing oil. The Lord said to Moses, verse 22, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. Verse 25, and you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. And so God now describes this specific anointing oil that would be used here in the worship. And it was made of these incredibly beautiful and aromatic, as it says there, fine spices. You've got 12 and a half pounds of myrrh, six and a half pounds of cinnamon, six and a half pounds of canes, 12 and a half pounds of cassia, four quarts of olive oil. They mix together to make this fragrant blend. 
And he says in verse 25, you make these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it, verse 26, you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony. So it would go upon the tent, it would go upon the ark and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. So this fragrant incense would be used to consecrate every utensil and instrument in the temple. Every piece of furniture in the tabernacle would be anointed by this fragrant oil. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Verse 29, whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured out on the body of an ordinary person and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. So to fake this anointing oil or to make some for yourself was a crime before the Lord. He said you will be cut off if you do that. God wanted to protect this anointing fragrance, did not want any imposters to exist. And of course, as has been mentioned previously, the anointing oil often is a beautiful picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord is looking for an anointed people filled and full of the Spirit, to serve him. Now, verse 34, the Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, sacti and onica and galbanum, sweet spices with pure fragrances. Of each there shall be an equal part. And verse 35, Make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. So we've seen the anointing oil. Now we see the ingredients of the incense that would be used and you shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you it shall be most holy for you and the incense that you shall make according to its composition you shall not make for yourselves it shall be for you holy to the Lord whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people so these were smells fragrances that would only be connected to the tabernacle would only be connected to worship and of course here you see that salt was to be added to these offerings to this incense and it really was to be added to all the grain offerings as well and so salt as an additive to these offerings before the lord now in chapter 31 we see the men that god would use to build all of this. I'm sure Moses is up there on the mountain wondering, how are we going to construct this? I'm not the handiest guy in the world, so I know that's a question I'd be asking. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 1, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahasamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able 
men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. So the Lord lists out everything now that he's told Moses needed to be constructed for Israel's worship. And he says, listen, I've raised up Bezalel and I've raised up Aholiab and I've raised up many other men to help with the task of actually constructing all of this stuff. And notice what a couple of things here. First of all, God is raising up the laborers, isn't he? Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest for laborers for the harvest. God raises up the laborers. Notice secondly that God makes the plan, but then as well provides for his plans. So gracious of him not to leave Moses to his own devices, but actually providing the men who'd be able to build. God will provide for the plans that he has initiated in your life and in my life. And notice as well that God considered this a spiritual work that the Holy Spirit needed to be involved in. He says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. In other words, God gave these men the ability they needed to get the job done, which should be an encouragement to all of us who are involved in serving the Lord in any way, shape, or form. Everything that they were doing was to be done under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. These men weren't preachers or teachers or judges, but even in their artistry, they were to be filled and led by the Spirit of God. Colossians 3 verse 23 tells us, whatever we do, we're to do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So, Bezalel, whose name means in the shadow of God, and Aholiab, whose name means tent of the Father, these godly men with godly character were chosen for the work. Now this section closes out in verse 12 with God speaking about the Sabbath. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 12, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. And so God here, of course, in the context of these workers, Bezalel and Aholiab and these other men, reminds them that in the construction of the tabernacle and, of course, in any other place of work throughout the nation of Israel, the Sabbath must be respected. God wanted a people who knew how to cease from their work. You know, if their ministry ever eclipsed and became so important to them that they felt that they had to work on it every single day, then you knew that something was out of whack. They had to learn how to rest before the Lord, to rest and be confident in Him 
and in his ability. I know as a pastor, this is one of the greatest lessons of my life to learn how to rest in the ability and in the promises of God and to trust that he, at the end of the day, will accomplish all of his purposes in and through my life. Therefore, verse 16, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel, not the church, but in Israel, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, after saying all of these words, verse 18, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. And so Moses' time on the mountain is complete. He receives the two tablets of the testimony and is now commissioned by the Lord. I love how God writes his word on stone because it is unchangeable. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.